Uh, there's a little uh, handout uh, with an outline for the talk tonight. If that helps you, if you like taking notes, please uh, pick that up. Uh, Julia and I, Julia, my wife, and I were watching a film the other night. We've got a bit of a routine. I don't know if you have this uh, in your house for those of you who are married or even just with friends. I say, uh, I think there's a scary bit coming up, um, and she ducks behind a cushion. Um, she didn't really like the scary bit. She, she watches films with me because I enjoy them, but sometimes with the scary bit, she doesn't like them. So I say, I think there's a scary bit coming up. She ducks away, and then I say, it, it's over now. Uh, living with Julia, uh, she didn't come with a list of rules. Um, she didn't come with a list of rules, things to do in given situations. But the more I get to know her, uh, the more I understand what she's like. Uh, and the more living with her becomes uh, better and better. It's not rules, it's getting to know her. And we've been thinking, I guess, uh, last week, uh, this week and next week, that uh, being a Christian is something like that. It's not a list of rules to be followed, especially if you're here tonight and you're, uh, you're not a Christian, you're just finding out about it, and perhaps you've thought that in the past, that being a Christian is just rules to follow. It's, it's not like that, the way the Bible describes it. No, no, a Christian is someone who's been brought into God's family through Jesus, not because of good things they've done, uh, but because of Jesus' death on the cross in their place, brought back into a right relationship with God as his children, adopted. And we thought about that briefly last week. And then from that point, Christian living flows out of getting to know this God who saved us. Uh, the more we get to know him, the more we know how to live for him. So we're thinking over uh, these three weeks, living for the living God. Uh, living for the God who really is alive. Who draws us into a relationship with himself through Jesus. And we're back in 1 Timothy tonight. It'd probably be a help to you to turn back uh, to page 1192 if you've not already and just follow along with that as we look at these few uh, verses together. But just as we do that as well though, I thought it'd be good, we can't go through this whole letter, I thought it'd be good to draw your attention to another theme that runs through this letter. Uh, you'll see the verses that are on this little handout uh, that, I, that I've done for you tonight. Three verses uh, there, let me just read them to you. Another theme that runs through this letter. The the first one, Paul says this, Timothy, he's writing to a man called Timothy, who's a church leader. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command so that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well, holding on to faith, uh, the truth we believe, and a good conscience. Now, how you'll live it out. He says to him later in the letter, uh, watch your life and your doctrine closely. Now, watch how you live matches with what you say you believe. And then the last one where he says this, the sins of some are obvious, reaching the place of judgment ahead of them, that the sins of others trail behind them. In the same way, good deeds are obvious, and even those that are not obvious cannot remain hidden forever. I think Paul's concerned with integrity. That if you say you're a Christian, it should be obvious in the way you live. In fact, he seems to say that what you're like will eventually show itself sooner or later. I think that's part of the point of that last verse we just read there. What you like will eventually show itself. It will come out. Uh, That reminded me, uh, I kind of think you can tell quite a lot about someone from what makes them smile. You know that? uh, What what makes them smile? Uh, What you love, what you love eventually shows itself, doesn't it? You can't help it. It comes out in your face in a smile. So for some of you, last year, it was Strictly Come Dancing, wasn't it? You couldn't help yourself. The dresses, the Viennese waltz, all those things. They, they just brought a smile to your face. And, and the rest of us know why. Because you were imagining yourself there wearing those dresses. And having the judges say, you're a natural. You're brilliant. And for others, it's other things. Um, 
I quite like, I have to say, um, what's it called? You've been framed. Uh, People falling over. (laughs) Slipping. I can't help it. I'm slightly embarrassed of it, but it brings a a smile to my face. And, And with your friends, it's one of the great things about deepening friendships, isn't it? See, finding out what's on the inside of someone and seeing how it expresses itself on the outside. It's great, isn't it? With friends you've got to know and you you find out something about them. I I didn't know you were like that. I didn't know you thought like that, but I've just seen how it expresses itself. It's great. We get to do that with God in chapter 2. That's quite something, isn't it? We, We get to know a bit more about what God's like what brings a smile to his face. Do you see it there in verse 3? In the passage we read, chapter 2, verse 3. This is good and pleases God our Saviour. It's one of those linking verses in the Bible that stands between two ideas, leading you from one activity that we're encouraged to do onto the principle that stands behind it. This is good and pleases God our Saviour. You know what Paul's saying? There's something that you and I can be involved in. An activity. But when God sees it, it corresponds with something about himself that what comes out from him is approval and pleasure. This is good and pleases God our Saviour, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. If you thought about it at all, as we read through, you know it's about evangelism. Every Christian knows telling others about Jesus is a good thing. Everyone knows that. I mean, you just pause for a moment and think about this. Because we're not just talking about evangelism. We're talking about divine approval and pleasure. And divine approval and pleasure is not merely a box we want to tick off as we race through another New Testament letter. No, it's It's something we want to stop and consider. Because God is showing you something about himself. See, our God is a saving God. Saving people gives him pleasure. See, I think that's good to know, isn't it, as you talk to people about Jesus. It's good to know when you wonder if God cares about the friends and family you have who don't know Christ. It's good to know if you're here and you're not a Christian. Now you've been thinking it through and you're, you're just starting to wonder, and not if you're interested in this God, but whether this God would welcome someone like you. See, it's good to know as a church that when we partner together in evangelism, we will be receiving divine approval and provoking divine pleasure. Or for those of you who don't use flowery language and just talk normally, we make God happy. Now that's what this is saying. So that being true, we, we want to answer this question more fully. How do you please a God like that? If that's what God is like, and you've linked your life up with his, if you've trusted in Jesus and you say you're going to follow him, how do you please him? Well, here's some things I think come out of this uh, passage. They're on your handout. Uh, The first one is this. uh, Don't be elitist. Uh, That might seem an odd one to start with. Uh, uh, Ted lives up the road from me. 
He's a great neighbour. Some of you might know him. If you don't, if you were, let me tell you, if you were to have a conversation with him, I can almost guarantee there would be at least three things he'd say to you. And they would be CBBs and Buzzy Bee and Carr. Uh, he might also mention Fraser Bear as well. Well, he is his kind of take-everywhere bear. Uh, Ted's two years old. Uh, he's a great neighbour, and they're the things that are important to him. And they keep coming up in his conversation. So when you meet him, I guarantee you he'll talk to you about them. And in the same way, we're, we're meant to do the same thing when it comes to God's word. We're meant to be listening for the things that are important to him. Now, what does this God keep repeating? Now, what does he want us to hear? Even as the specifics of a topic in the passage we've just read change from our prayers to God's pleasure, uh, to Paul's ministry, is there a repeated idea? Well, there is. And did you hear it as we read through it? It's all about who the gospel is for and who we're to show gospel concern to. Look, look, verse 1 now Paul writes this, I, I urge then that first of all, request, prayers, intercession and thanksgiving be made for everyone. Uh, verse 3, uh, this is good and pleases God our Saviour who wants all men, all people to be saved. Uh, verse 6, uh, Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all men. Uh, verse 7, Paul is a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles, literally that's the nations. Everywhere. So why repeat that? I don't know about you, but I've started thinking about summer holidays already. I had a look on the internet, see if I could find anything for us this summer, and I thought I'd found something the other day. It's called Necker Island. You heard of it? And Necker Island, it, it looks wonderful. It's in the Caribbean, just the sort of holiday I'm sure Julia would enjoy. It's the island owned by Richard Branson. Now listen to this. Make Necker Island your personal retreat, a unique opportunity to enjoy this exquisite private paradise. That sounds a really nice invitation, doesn't it? I like the sound of that. A paradise in the Caribbean. Sounds good. Uh, you read on. $47,000 per night. <laughs> I'm not sure how to break it to Julia. Probably we won't both be able to go. There are things in life like that, aren't they? They, they look wonderful. <laughs> and then you read the price tag and you think, not for me. Not for me. There, there are things like that that seem to be for an elite. But not God. And not the God we meet in the Bible. No, no elitism when it comes to God. The gospel is for everyone. Uh, the gospel itself makes that clear, verse 5. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. You look at that and it's, it's kind of a basic maths, isn't it? So even the art students amongst us can add this one up. So there's one God and there's one way to be right with God. That's Jesus Christ and he's available to everyone. So you add that up and you, you see what, you, what it equals. See, if anyone knows and trusts Jesus properly, they're a fully saved person who knows God. They don't need anything else. According to the gospel, uh, the only status of any significance is, 
It's whether you know God or not. And he's thrown open access to himself by saying anyone, anyone who trusts Jesus can come. You know those annoying puzzles you get at Christmas? You know those ones, two bits of metal entangled together? You get them sometimes in in posher crackers or maybe it's just a little extra present. And you sit for hours trying to untangle it. Sometimes it's nails bent together, weird. and You try and get it out. I I sit with them. You you can't do it. And then you pass it to an eight-year-old niece who does it in 30 seconds. And you find yourself thinking, that's ridiculous. You're eight years old. You don't have a degree. You can't drive. You're not invited to grown-up parties. And you're a girl. (laughs) It's really humbling, isn't it? It's really humbling. I'm glad you laughed because that way I realise it's not just me who has thoughts like that. Um, <laughs> actually, it's only humbling, isn't it? It's only humbling if your confidence has been in all those other things. That's the only reason it's humbling. If your confidence has been in those things, your gender, your age, your intellectual prowess, those things you thought made you better. Christmas puzzles aren't impressed by any of those. And neither are eight-year-old nieces. See, that little toy humbles you for a moment. Finds a way to reduce everyone to the same level. The same kind of thing happens, but in a more profound and lasting way with the gospel. Because God, through the gospel message, this message about Jesus, has found a way to save people that deals with the problem of human pride. That humbles us. If Jesus is the only one who makes me right with God and he's available to everyone regardless, then there's no opportunity for an elite. Now that impacts who we approach in evangelism, doesn't it? That impacts who we, who we speak to. See, the, the gospel might well be for Fullwood, but it's also for Encliffe as well, isn't it? Well, that's at least one of the things that, that's motivating the church plan. That's a good thing. And making sure the gospel is offered wider and wider and wider. And when we've helped that new church get going, the question we want to be thinking about is not really where else, but who else? Who else can we share this with? How far can we go with it? Rachel was a student I knew up in York. She lives in Stockton now. She told me this story. She was in her garden uh, one afternoon, hanging out, washing. She came back in and heard someone upstairs. And she shouted, come out, I can hear you. And a man with a ski mask on, carrying a bin bag of her stuff, came to the top top of the stairs. Now, what would you say? Uh, Rachel said, you're bigger than me. So you can push past me, I won't stop you. Or you can come into the kitchen, sit down, I'll make you a cup of tea and tell you something that will change your life. And over a cup of tea, she told her burglar about Jesus and put him in touch with a man from her church. Now, they're the exceptional stories, aren't they? And please don't mishear me. I'm not suggesting on any point of principle single women should hang around to tackle burglars. (laughs) I would suggest you call the police after you've run. But that's the kind of attitude I want. See, even if I'm rightly running from a threat, I want to be thinking, I wish I could tell them the gospel. I wish I could speak to them. 
and no elitism. I wish I could tell them the gospel alongside the mum at the school gates. Are the friend of your teenage son that you don't like? Are the bitchy girl at school who looks down on you? See, the transforming gospel is to be offered to everyone. I heard a term that's used to describe certain female students. Apparently they're called the 2AM girls. I think they're the girls that always get picked up as the nightclubs close, end up sleeping with some random guy. You see what Paul would say? See, he'd say that the gospel is not only for them, but the gospel also says that you and I were no better positioned than them to be able to believe and accept it. See, the real surprise should always be that the gospel has been offered to us as well. It's got to affect who we approach in evangelism. It's also got to affect how we approach evangelism. It's got to make us humble, hasn't it? I, I think I sometimes get so excited about winning the argument that I lose sight of what really pleases God, according to this passage, uh, winning people. I've just wanted to show off, display how much I know, how articulate I can be. See, I've disclosed when I do that, my real hope, my real hope is to look good. See, if I'm hoping the gospel is going to transform someone I'm speaking to into a much-loved brother or sister who I'll humbly serve, now that will start to affect how I speak to them. So the gospel should make me humble. And if, if that's what it does, see, if the gospel really does make me humble, then as I share the gospel, proud people will make fun of me. Now, that's part of the gospel doing its work. See, don't be surprised when Christian friends back off from evangelism because they're worried that they might look stupid. See, don't be surprised when Christian friends back off from speaking about Jesus because they're worried that people might make fun of them. Don't be surprised, but encourage them. Well, the gospel must do its humbling work. And can I say, some of you here I know are not Christians. And you've been thinking about the claims of Jesus, you've been thinking them through, you've maybe come on Christianity Explored, and that's been great, but you've not been willing to follow him yet. And you've been thinking it through very seriously, and what you're saying is something like, I'm not sure I really believe this yet. But I wonder if for some of you, what's really going on is that you've realised that if you become a Christian, friends housemates, family will possibly think less of you. And that's hard, isn't it? Because it's humbling. Will you let the saving God humble you? He wants to get you to the point where you will trust Jesus alone and he's doing it to save you. Not to cause you harm. So you'll find out just how good Jesus is. Don't turn away. See, it impacts who we approach. It impacts how we approach people in evangelism. But actually, it also impacts how we relate as a church family, doesn't it? See, elitism can grow up even in a church family. I think I've spotted it when I hear things like, oh yes, I come to Fullwood, but I'm not really the Fullwood type. You hear hints of it there. Now, whatever the reason for that, whether Fullwood's too middle class for you and you've got a kind of inverted snobbery, 
Uh, Whether you think we're in the shallow end of spiritual power, whether you're just more clever than leaders here, I think carefully about what you're saying. Uh, You don't have to be middle class to be here. Uh, You don't have to like everything all the time. And most of you, I know, have got much bigger brains than me, so I think it's good when people ask questions about what I'm doing. It's good for me to learn from wise Christians as I lead. But don't start to talk in a way that begins to separate you and your friends from the everyone else. See, don't form yourself into a group that starts to define itself as, but we're different. And because it's a tiny jump from we're different to we're better. And Paul would say, at that point, you become elitist. And you're obscuring the witness of the saving God who saves anyone who trusts Jesus. Oh, here's the second thing. I learned to pray evangelistically. If you want to please this God, this saving God, we'll learn to pray evangelistically. Uh, Some of you will know Tim Dennis. He's a a member uh, of our church family here, works for UCCF. He got married to Jane uh, just before Christmas last year. I don't know if you've, you've ever heard the story of how Tim proposed to Jane. It's worth hearing at length. If you've not met him, maybe you'll meet him over coffee tonight and you can ask him for, for all the details. But, but let me just tell you briefly about a fake work meeting he arranged for her. I'd been picked up by a chauffeur who drove her to the grounds of Blenheim Palace where she found Tim waiting with a picnic and a proposal. He's a good lad, isn't he? I don't like Julia hearing that story too much. I proposed outside Derby Station at 7 o'clock in the morning. But with, but with Tim, you understand what he was doing. He wanted to make sure on the day he proposed, Jane had a clear picture of how much he loved her and why spending her life with him would be good news. He wanted to make it as easy as possible for the most pleasing words he's hoped to hear to be spoken. Tim, I'd love to marry you. There, I've said it as well. (laughs) I've just seen him and he's smiling, so it's all right. (laughs) I come back to verses 1 to 3 in this, this passage we've read, because that's kind of what Paul's saying. Uh, That's the idea Paul's got in mind. Paul's wanting us to pray evangelistically so that some of the words that most please God have the best chance of being spoken. Uh, Lord Jesus, will you save me? Now you might think that's straightforward. All you do is pray for friends to become Christians. But but look at Paul's thinking. He says in verse 1, look, just pray for everyone. But more than that, verse 2, pray for for kings and all those in authority that we may live peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. This is good and pleases God our Saviour who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. Two areas Paul has in mind are authorities and and Christians. Authorities, pray that authorities handle their responsibilities well so that Christians can live their lives freely. And pray for Christians Pray that Christians live out the gospel with integrity. Now, what we were thinking about at the beginning, and one of the themes that runs through this letter, that, that's how Paul says we're to pray evangelistically. 
See, this isn't just a prayer for a quiet life. It's not just a prayer for world peace. It's a prayer for the best possible conditions for people to hear about the saving God. See, we're to pray that the government run this country well. Councillors run this city well. Governors run our schools well. To what end? So that Christians can live as free as possible. With as many opportunities as possible to live out and explain the gospel. And that authorities have good policies in place for religious groups so that when people try and suppress Christian witness, all levels of government will defend our freedom to live and speak for Jesus. All levels of government will defend your right to hear the gospel. Now, on the whole, we enjoy that freedom, don't we? But we don't want to take it for granted. We want to keep praying for it. And enjoying those freedoms, it's great when we're living it out, as Paul encourages us to, when Christian unions can put on events at their universities. When Christian parents can be involved in the life of the school and can demonstrate and speak up for God's way to live. When Christian professionals do their work with integrity and aren't afraid to say it's because they're Christians. When as a church family we meet together in home groups and on Sundays, sharing our money and our homes and hospitality in a way that the world can see. See, the student team home group meets in, in our house on Wednesday, 16 people in our front room. Studying the Bible, encouraging each other, trying to be Christian family together. It's only on Wednesdays. It's not much. But one of our neighbours says regularly, your home is always full of people from church, isn't it? Well, that's what we want to demonstrate, isn't it? As neighbours look in through our windows, into our homes and into our lives, they see it's good being in this family. Our people live a good way. Living for God seems to be good. They love each other and care for each other. See, if we're Christians, our integrity matters. See, we want to pray that with the freedoms we have, we live out the gospel in godliness and holiness. The students and, and young people, if you handle sex and relationships in a godly way, I can imagine in the short term, some of your friends will make fun of you. But I can tell you from talking with people whose lives have been damaged by casual use of sex, divorce, adultery, they do want to see something different. And God wants to show them through you the kind of family he wants to save them into. And sadly, as in any church family, I guess there will be some here for whom godliness has started to stop being important. And you don't even realize it. Uh, but your actions are beginning to bring the gospel into disrepute. Instead of provoking God's pleasure, you're beginning to prompt his angry discipline. Well, you need to wake up and repent. Now, for some of you, I imagine, this might even be the final warning the Lord gives you before you make some disastrous and damaging compromise. I pray that he'll have mercy and forgive and restore you to godliness. And when we start to pray like that, and when we start to pray that we'll live life in a way that makes things as easy as possible, 
for others to hear and respond to Jesus. And we'll be living in a way that pleases the saving God. Now here's the last thing, and uh, more briefly. I proclaim the apostolic message. I proclaim the message about Jesus that, that uh, Paul gives us. Speak it out. Uh, there are, from time to time, challenges that come up against the idea of evangelism being the proclamation of a message. Uh, some are kind of bonkers ideas. Some are more well-meant, wanting evangelism to be primarily acts of kindness and caring for people. Now, those things are, are really important. Uh, how we live is vitally important. I hope you've heard that already, but it's hard here to get away from the idea that Paul has in his mind of a message being proclaimed. Now, just look what he says, verse 3. He says, God wants everyone to come to a knowledge of the truth. There's content to it. At verse 6, is speaking about the gospel as the testimony given in its proper time. Verse 7, Paul is a herald and a teacher of the true faith to the Gentiles. It's a message that needs to be spoken out. And Paul in these verses gives us a little outline of the gospel's content. It's all there in verse 5. And we've read it already. You hear what he says, For there is one God... And one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men. So the fundamental truth the gospel declares is that God and all people stand at odds with each other. You know that because the gospel says we need a mediator. Someone to stand between us, someone to bring us together. That's the big issue that the world faces, that you face. And the kind of mediator clarifies the seriousness of the problem. You see what Paul says? We, we needed a mediator who gave himself as a ransom. So he gave himself. That, that's a way of saying sacrifice himself. He, he died in your place. And what for? Well, ransom, well, that, that carries the idea of being released from sin and judgment. The so hell is the reality that every life hangs over. And the identity of this mediator, well, it's Jesus Christ. He is God and man. So he can take on the role of mediator, representing both sides and reconciling them. And Jesus Christ died so that if you trust him tonight, you'll be totally right with God and free. The being spiritual is, is not a matter of believing in whatever God you fancy, it's responding to the one and only living God and humbling yourself and trusting his one and only mediator, Jesus Christ. If you do that, he will be pleased to save you. And wanting to please him, and we should speak to others about Jesus Christ and his death that he died for them. I draw your attention to this because I think we need to keep being convinced of this. Speaking for Jesus can be hard. And we need to set in our minds again and again that the saving God says it's the right thing to do. He is a saving God. And this is how he does it. And don't be elitist. Pray that our lives make it easy for people to listen to the gospel. And as a church family, let's get on with speaking about him. Let's pray together.